So I would like to speak. My entire uh, presentation will be about something that the present one uh, delivered by uh, Dr. Kiran McNally uh, takes for granted, which is that human beings come, uh, come into existence within the evolutionary process. This is something... Uh, this is a topic where uh, the encounter of philosophy and theology with uh, this particular biological uh, claim uh, on anthropogenesis inspired the most emotional reaction to evolutionary theory and posed a considerable challenge uh, to systematic and uh, philosophical theology. And the history of the conversation here between science and religious worldviews on this very topic of communization is long and complicated. Today, I would like to address two specific issues. I hope they won't be too technical, but I still find them uh, very uh, important and I hope you will agree with me. First, I will delineate the contemporary Thomistic approach to the question of the origin of our species, and I will try to defend its theologically, I believe, theologically more accurate and precise version uh, than the most prevalent uh, definition that is uh, of this view, which is classified as a same semi-naturalistic uh, position on the human speciation, which is supported by many theologians uh, and is also present in official statements of the church. So I'll try to uh, maybe uh, make it more specific and uh, try to propose uh, maybe a more accurate version of this uh, of this uh, understanding of this definition. Secondly, I would like to refer to the complex debate on mono versus polygenism. Uh, and here I will offer a critical evaluation of the contemporary version of the monogenetic scenario of the origin of human species. So uh, first, I will begin with th this definition or churches, Catholic Church's understanding of the human uh, uh, origins. So uh, what happens here is the church uh, now accepts, after humani generis, uh, accepts uh, the claim that uh, human beings come into existence within evolutionary transitions uh, or transformations. Uh, but... Uh, what I want to say is that the language that churches uses in order to defy uh, this very uh, uh, understanding of the origin of uh, human species is deeply uh, dualistic, uh, which, uh, I, and I will criticize it from the perspective of the Aristotelian Thomistic metaphysics, which uh, is also dualistic, but it is not a substance dualism, but it is a metaphysical dualism, dualism of metaphysical categories and not a dualism of two separate substances, which in this conversations, conversations are body and soul. So this dualistic uh, language is present from the very beginning of the response to evolutionary theory with respect to uh, anthropogenesis. So, one year after Darwin published his uh, on the origin of species, there is a local synod of uh, in, uh, of Cologne in Cologne where uh, the church, the local church, uh, there comes with a claim on evolution of the human species, where it says this: the first parents were created directly by God, and therefore it is contrary to sacred scripture and to the faith. Uh, uh, the opinion of those who are not ashamed to assert what? That man 
insofar as his body is concerned, came to be by spontaneous uh, change from imperfect nature to the most perfect and uh, in a continuous process, finally be, uh, becoming a human being. And to this, uh, this uh, synod adds that uh, obviously the the origin of the soul uh, is divine creation, uh, direct divine creation ex nihilo. So what I want to point uh, towards in this formulation from the very beginning, we have this statement that if evolution can do anything, it can prepare the body. And then the soul comes from God created ex nihilo. So we have this dualistic uh, language from the very beginning. This is the most anti-evolutionary statement that came from the church. It was a local church. So uh, taking uh, putting aside the extent to which actually it is really anti-evolutionary, -evolution putting aside uh, the lack of consensus as to whether the direct formation of the human body was treated as an article of faith or not, putting aside theological and cultural context of Germany at that time and uh, what evolutionary theory uh, meant uh, for scholars and what was the conversation, what was the context, putting also aside uh, the question concerning the level of magisterial teaching of this local synod and eventually uh, putting also aside once again uh, the question whether this synod was actually answering to Darwin uh, which Kenneth Kemp's claims it actually was not because Darwin was not translated uh, entirely into German at, at that point. Putting all this aside, and these are very important issues when you think about this first response to evolutionary theory, what interests me the most here is this dualistic terminology of this decree. Body and soul are discussed as if they were two separate substances. And we can see this language then is being in a way accepted by those uh, now theologians who try to uh, marry uh, evolutionary biology and uh, human and theological account of anthropogenesis. One of the probably the, actually the first uh, of uh, among them is uh, Saint uh, George uh, Jackson uh, Mivar, a British biologist, a, a convert to Catholicism, who was. Uh, who saw this uh, difficulty and who was trying to bring peace between uh, theology and uh, biology. And he is actually the first one who now positively uses the same language that I mentioned uh, about uh, before. So he says this, Scripture says that God made man from the dust of the earth and breathed in, into, into his nostrils the breath of life. This is the plain and direct statement that Man's body, again, was evolved from pre-existing material symbolized by the term of dust of the earth and was therefore formed by the operation of secondary laws. Now, the soul of every individual man is created, produced by a direct or supernatural act, uh, and uh, therefore the soul of the first man has also, uh, they, it has to, uh, it has to, uh, be created in the same way. But again, we see this distinction between body, evolution prepares the body, and God gives the soul. Uh, John Augustine Zam, to give you another example, uh, he was a Holy Cross priest, a scientist, professor of physics and chemistry, uh, one of the first professors uh, uh, at the University of Notre Dame in Indiana in the U.S., so he also uh, struggles with uh, or tries to bring uh, peace between evolution and uh, theology, similar to Filippo de Filippi, an Italian naturalist, uh, 
famous for for his lecture uh, Luomo e le Scime uh, from 1864. So John Augustine Zam, I will just bring one quotation from his important book Evolution and Dogma, where he says this: We should be obliged to revise the interpretation that has usually been given to the words of Scripture, which refer to the formation of Adam's body, and read these words in the sense which evolution demands. Again, evolution produces body; God gives the soul. This language is then accepted by the official teaching of the Church, first uh, in the person of uh, Pius the Twelfth who in his uh, uh, Humani Generis, in his uh, encyclical letter, uh, claims this with regard to the doctrine of evolution. Uh, the origin of the human body, again, uh, is, uh, we can think about it as coming from pre-existing and, and living matter, for the Catholic faith obliges us to hold that souls are immediately created by God. John Paul II, in his address to the Symposium on Evolution in, uh, I believe it was 1996, he says, uh, quotes and or repeats what Pius XII has said, if the human body takes its origin from pre-existing matter, the spiritual soul is immediately created by God. Now, I think that the difficulty of this language is that, again, it is deeply dualistic. And what are then the problems of this uh, formulation of the semi-naturalistic view of human uh, origins. Well, you cannot have human body without uh, it having a human soul. If there is Homo sapiens sapiens, you cannot have Homo sapiens, or let's say just Homo sapiens, who runs out there without a human soul, and then God says, okay, that I have a body here that evolution produced, and now I will put a soul into it. Uh, metaphysically speaking, it's it's not acceptable. Why? Because an already informed entity, a body, cannot receive an, an, an additional soul. If there is an animal body out there, it is an animal which has an animal soul in, in it, or is, is an animal soul which actualizes matter in this animal body. So you cannot add another soul. And this language that the church uses and, and theologians use may seem as if they were saying, or it may suggest, and I met many people who precisely think this way, that there is a separate body out there, and then God decides to put a human soul into this uh, uh, body. And the difficulty of this approach on the metaphysical level, or another aspect of the difficulty of this approach and uh, at the metaphysical level is that the proper correlate of substantial form, I want to emphasize it, a substantial form, which is a metaphysical principle, must be another metaphysical principle, which is primary matter. Uh, so, therefore, if we say that soul uh, informs body, well, we the, being trying to be precise, we must acknowledge it is an analogical way of predication. What soul uh, actualizes is primary by uh, primary matter. And it actualizes it in a way that what is right here is a human being, which uh, is an organic human uh, entity uh, that has material and spiritual aspect to it, but not material substance plus uh, metaphysical spiritual substance. 
right? So it's not substance dualism, but it is a dualism of two metaphysical principles, again, substantial form, which is my soul, and primary matter, which is a metaphysical principle of potentiality. Uh, so um, one may uh, try to defend this language that is being used in uh, by theologians and uh, church documents, saying that, well, we if God is truly transcendent and omnipotent, why not uh, uh, assume that there is a situation where we have an, an adult animal and then God you know, brings a substantial change where this animal turns into a human being. So uh, physically nothing changes, but metaphysically everything changes because there was a humming uh, representative and then now there's a human being. Well, God is omnipotent and he can do things like that. But uh, I think that uh, we would rather think that... Uh, uh, it is more convenient to God who likes to work through secondary causes and in accord with uh, laws of nature, it would be more convenient if God br uh, brings into existence the first human being in a way in which all new species come into existence if we assume that those transitions from a metaphysical point of view are discrete. Where if they are discrete from a metaphysical point of view, they come into existence in, at the moment of conception. When primary matter is disposed properly within entire complex evolutionary process, uh, it is disposed in a way such that when an ovum and sperm meet and join together, instead of uh, a next representative of species as one uh, coming to existence, uh, a new and first representative of the species as two comes into existence, right? It happens at the moment of conception and not during the time when an organism is an adult organism. So therefore, I would say that this picture or this language where we say evolution prepares the body and God gives the soul, I think it's inaccurate. And I would suggest that first human soul was created ex nihilo, yes, at the moment of conception of the first human being or beings. And this soul or these souls actualized properly disposed primary matter underlying gametes produced by male and female hominins at the moment of substantial change, which accompanies the moment of uh, fertilization. So I would say it's not that human body came through evolution and soul was added to it. I would say human beings came through evolution, uh, which doesn't uh, challenge uh, in any way the truth that their souls are still created. The soul of a human being is created by God ex nihilo, and it actualizes primary matter which was predisposed within evolutionary process and again, it's not added to a body that is somewhere there waiting, uh, already being a human body. Marie Dalmac-Leroy was a Dominican who, as the, who was the first one to, uh, to think in this way, but he was unfortunately criticized by the church, like probably all others that I've mentioned so far. The church was very skeptical about those first attempts of uh, trying to bring at peace uh, evolution and uh, creation. And he says something, uh, I think, very important in his uh, book uh, from 1891. He says, it is only after the infusion of the soul and because of the infusion itself, I don't like the language of, of infusion, but he uses it, 
that man is constituted as a living being. Before infusing the spirit, there was nothing human, not even the body, in as much as human flesh cannot exist without a soul, which is its substantial form. So there is no human body. If I die, there is no, we don't bury a body. We bury a cadaver, which looks like a body, but is a bunch of substances that are pretty, uh, dissolving pretty quickly. And actually, we find uh, a support for this claim, I'm sorry, uh, uh, in Aquinas. Uh, uh, first in Aristotle. Uh, Aristotle, in his parts of Animas, he says this, when the soul departs, what is left is no longer a living animal. None of the parts remain what they are or, or what they were before, except in configuration. So it looks like an animal body, but it's not. So we can revert this and say, uh, it's impossible for a soul to enter an animal body because if there's animal body, it is already a living organism. So you, uh, so, so, so it doesn't work this way, at, at least within this metaphysical uh, framework. Aquinas has a long uh, passage on this in his commentary uh, to uh, Peter Lombard, but a shorter passage in Summa Contra Gentiles where he says, Again, similar like Aristotle, when the soul departs, neither the whole body nor its part remain of the same species as before. The eye or flesh of the dead thing are so called only in an equivocal sense. Uh, so in my 2019 paper, and it, is, it will also uh, come in my upcoming book on evolution, I... I offered a model of how God acts in the cre in, in the uh, speciation, and uh, this model is very complex. So I don't want to discuss the whole thing. But what I want to emphasize in case of human beings, because I adjust this model because this is a special type of speciation. Truly, substantial form is not induced from the potency of matter, like in the case of other animals, it is directly created by God, but it doesn't enter a living animal. Uh, it informs or actualizes primary matter, which is created by God as well. But this primary matter is disposed to receive or be actualized uh, by this substantial form within the process of evolutionary transitions, where the last step of it would be to uh, hominins in this case who uh, who produce again ovum and sperm and they come together and produce and the first human being comes into existence so this is that would be the essence part of what this first uh, human being is and there's an existence part but uh, uh, don't try to read it it's uh, it's too complex and it's not our interest uh, right now so that would be my uh, uh, attempt to clarify the position on what we should or we could understand by the semi-naturalistic uh, origin of a human being, which is simultaneously a natural process within evolutionary transitions and supernatural in a way or in this aspect where God creates the soul not, uh, directly ex nihilo. By the way, it is still not a miraculous intervention. It is rather... Uh, in a way, a natural intervention because there is no other way uh, human souls can come into existence. So God is not changing anything in nature. He just, this is the way he designed uh, for human souls uh, uh, to uh, come into existence. Uh, 
Okay, so now I move to the second part, where within the complex debate on mono and polygenies, so once we accept that human beings can come into existence in the evolutionary uh, process, so then the question is whether it was just Adam or Adam and Eve, or there were more of them. So here, uh, I want to refer to the contemporary uh, defense of monogenetic origin of the human species. Well, I will begin with a simple uh, uh, reminder that biology definitely favors polygenism. That was uh, a view assumed by Darwin. Uh, and the modern 20th century ev evolutionary synthesis, which, by the way, is changing, and we believe that we are already uh, work, uh, the work in pro is in progress on the contemporary, we will probably call it the 21st century uh, synthetic, uh, synthetic model of uh, evolutionary uh, changes and transitions. But the one defined in uh, the 20th century, uh, that synthetic uh, theory uh, says this. Uh, this is uh, Theodosius Dobrzyński, one of the founding fathers of this, uh, of this uh, theory. He says, species arise not as single individuals, but always as diverging populations and breeding communities. Uh, the difficulty, uh, also therefore the most probable scenario is monophyletic origin of humans, but polygenetic and most likely within this polygenetic scenario uh, that might have happened in several regions of one larger population. The difficulty biology would have with monogenetic scenario would be this extremely narrow bottleneck where the, uh, where the population would have to go down to, well... In, if we want to follow scripture uh, fully, uh, literally, to just one or two uh, organisms. And then uh, we would have to say from the biological point of view, miraculously, when they become human beings, they grow and uh, rebuild an entire uh, population, uh, which becomes uh, the, a new species. So from a biological perspective, this is something that is uh, virtually impossible. Therefore, uh, Denis uh, Venema, uh, who is a, a biologist and geneticist, he says that humans as a species are uh, descended from ancestral population of at least several thousand individuals. And he uh, m works on that uh, in population genetics on uh, trying to, uh, to model uh, human speciation. So he claims that we have tools nowadays to uh, to to speculate and in a way uh, prove that there was even no significant we, we may it might be true that we know today that there was no significant change in human population so we not only know the size of it but we may be even uh, probably sure that there was no significant change in the size of that population so it's not only that there were several thousand but we know it it's there was no uh, dramatic uh, change in the size of the population now those uh, within the uh, Christian and Catholic tradition who favor and want to defend monogenism, they bring a bunch of arguments uh, that they say we have to take into account when we look at this biological evidence that I just shared with you. They say, first of all, that Genesis the, the account speaks about Adam and Eve, and that's about it. So... Uh, we have one, at least one scriptural argument. There are other scriptural arguments. For example, in the book of wisdom, we, we read about wisdom that preserved the first formed father of the world when he alone had been created. 
uh, Acts of the Apostles, Paul speaking uh, in uh, uh, in Athens, he says uh, about God who made from one the whole human race. He says from one, he never says about one man, but uh, he probably assumes that uh, it is Adam uh, that he, uh, uh, this is Adam that he has in mind. Well, this is scripture. Immediately, you know, uh, the question enters how you interpret scripture, whether you interpret it literally or not. But those who are in favor of monogenetic scenario, they say you shouldn't just, you know, pass over it without uh, a deeper reflection. Then we have uh, humani generis, and I believe you are, and I hope you are familiar with this statement, a very important statement. So while the Pope says you can think or we, or we can think about uh the origin of human species in evolutionary terms. When it comes to polygenism, the faithful cannot embrace that opinion, uh, which maintains that either after Adam there existed on this earth true men who did not take uh, their origin through natural generation from him, and uh, as from the first parent of all, which is actually not polygenism, but polyphiletism. And then the other option is the polygenism uh, where Adam re represents a certain number of first parents and not just one first uh, parent. So he says that it is impossible to embrace it because of the difficulties uh, uh, when we uh, refer it to the teaching on original sin and uh, St. Paul's uh, analogy of Adam and Christ. Adam who uh, is the first one to sin and Christ is the first, is the one who brings us back to uh, unity with God. So the claim of monogenists uh, would be this document closes the conversation. Uh, and there is a long conversation on whether it closes or it does not, but at least they claim it does close the conversation. Then we have the time uh, here in Rome, uh, 1966. Uh, around that time, we have a number of theologians who actually work on original sin also in reference to evolutionary theory, and they are actually thinking about this, uh, what I quoted just a minute before, about the statement from Humani Generis, and they they feel, I believe, that maybe there is a need, an opportunity to rethink this theology of original sin and this analogy in St. Paul so that polygenism would be acceptable. Uh, and then the Pope organizes uh, this uh, symposium and actually, he opens it with this, this address where he uh, delivers a strong, even stronger than in human generalist argument against polygenism. Uh, and I, I believe it might have been surprising, uh, at least for, because I know the writings of those theologians who probably hoped for some changes. And I, 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 I guess they were surprised by what he says, uh, where he says that some modern authors, if you have it on the slide, they uh, start from the undemonstrated hypothesis of polygenism and give, again, explanations of original sin. So always this uh, connection to original sin is a problem. So not biology, but theology here suppo uh, supposedly is uh, a problem for uh, the Pope. And the last argument on their side, and maybe there's more, but the most important ones, this is the argument uh, from mitochondrial Eve and why from chromosomal Adam. I don't have time to get into this argument, but today it has been. So the claim is basically that we can uh, 
based on scientific evidence, we can uh, go back to the, fir to, to the first uh, uh, woman and the first man uh, in our species. Uh, so uh, scientists, they show that even if we can go and find the first mother of all of us that are alive here today, it doesn't prove that she was the only one human uh, mother at that time. The same with the, uh, the first father, which is Adam. So this argument is actually uh, uh, has a response which uh, which uh, um, contradicts it, and, and, and it's not it's not a valid argument anymore. Now. So uh, those who argued uh, in this way, uh, as I have uh, presented those arguments in favor of monogenism, some of them, uh, they would say, okay, if science says something different, well, maybe this is the problem of science. We have to st stick to theology and uh, this is what obliges us. These are, this, these are documents of the church period. But there are those obviously who say, no, we cannot go this way. Uh, so, and we have a difficulty here because the theology seems to be saying one thing and biology seems to be saying another thing. So we have a number of, uh, and I would like to refer to three of them, theologians and philosophers who try to find a way uh, to defend monogenism within uh, uh, or with uh, reference to biological science and in a way that doesn't contradict biology. So the, first, uh, the second one of them, and I begin with the second one because he uh, defies terminology in, uh, in, uh, within this conversation, is Andrew Alexander. He writes a paper in 1964 where he distinguishes three, I call them, phases of hominization, where first he says we may speak about the biological species, uh, which is the population of interbreeding individuals. We heard this definition today uh, already. Then he says, uh, we can distinguish it from the philosophical uh, man or philosophical human being, where uh, the philosophical human uh, species is, or, uh, or philosophical human being is a rational animal, which already is a natural kind, which already has the capacity for conceptual thought, judgment, reasoning, and even free choice. The only one thing that it lacks is the transcendental um, a reference to the transcendental and openness to, therefore, to sanctifying grace. So, therefore, he says that the third stage of spe human speciation would be the stage where, at which a theological human comes into existence, and that would be a group of individuals that have an eternal destiny. They have a sense of transcendental, and they uh, are capable of receiving supernatural grace. And he claims. That first of all, those uh, three uh, types. Um, so the, the claim is this: simultaneously, uh, there may be both a simply biological human beings, philosophical philosophical human human beings, and theological human beings, and uh, therefore, uh, being a theological human being doesn't prevent you from being biologically speaking, a human being. So you can still procreate with human beings. He uses the name human beings that are not theological human beings, but you can still, uh, the, you can still procreate with them because they are biological human beings and even philosophical human beings. So therefore they have judgment, thought, free choice. And therefore you connect to those, uh, uh, be, uh, to those animals and you can still uh, procreate with them. And therefore, Agree uh, by making uh, an agreement that 
uh, a form of bestiality is possible for the first uh, Homo sapiens, we then avoid the problem of this uh, very narrow bottleneck effect because there is a larger population of biological and philosophical human beings where first theological human being comes into existence, where for him, this final step is, even though this is a moment uh, or the change where we uh, observe the theological change, he still claims that there is something that it corresponds to it in the in a biological material, uh, so that he claims that the, probably it happens through some one particular genetic mutation. Now, Camille Müller uh, was actually the first one to think in this way, but he did not develop this complex uh, terminology. He claimed that Adam and Eve coexisted within a wider biologically human population. But he claims that the final step of hominization uh, was not a biological change, but just uh, an infuse of sanctifying grace. Now, I find this position uh, problematic. Uh, oh, this is just a one quotation uh, from him, uh, uh, where he says that through the successive then unions of those descendants of several primitive couples, a very limited number of generations would be enough for all men to be descended uh, from the first man of which Genesis speaks. So he says this is um, still monogenism, but less strict, but equally efficacious. Today, we uh, call this position uh, theological monogenism within biological polygenism. So in my opinion, the difficulty of his position is, is this. Uh, well, if he claims that this transition is just adding supernatural grace, the difficulty then would be if this is just the gift of grace that is being added, that would mean that you already have human beings who have immortal human souls because supernatural grace is supernatural. So naturally, there everything should be there. So then you would have, well, natura pura, uh, where the classical theology says natura pura never existed. It's just a theoretical concept because uh, from the very beginning, uh, human beings had the divine uh, grace and uh, preternatural gifts. Uh, also, if you claim that uh, to become a human being, they need to receive the supernatural grace, well, that seems to suggest that supernatural grace is an integral part of, of a human nature, which is problematic within the debate on uh, and conversation on uh, nature and grace. And eventually, uh, yes, uh, if one is true, uh, then uh, his position leans towards polygenism, I think, or maybe you could use this term, which I've mentioned, theological monogenism uh, and within polygenism. So the most recent, ver recent version of the same argument is offered by Kenneth Kemp, who is a, a philosopher. So now, he, first, he argues against uh, the view presented by Alexander. He is skeptical about Alexander's view where everything hinges on this one particular mutation. Uh, he says this is uh, a, a strange idea because it would have to spontaneously affect two organisms, male and female. Well, I answer to his criticism saying, why presuppose that the mutation in one uh, organism would not be enough on the account on the, of, of, of the subsequent interbreeding with hominins that produces fully uh, human offspring, where it is enough, let's say, if there's just one Adam, he can interbreed with hominins and produce fer fertile offspring, which is human uh, sub homo sapiens. Why not assume that 
a mutation in just one organism uh, uh, suffices? And then why assume that the same mutation could not actually occur in two organisms when today we know that many mutations are very specific, targeting precise uh, loci uh, or loci uh, in particular uh, parts of genome? Kenneth Kemp argues against uh, this particular uh, last uh, this understanding of the last stage in uh, in uh, Alexander's account and he says that his proposition is this so we begin with a population for, of about 5000 hominins hominins well he still uses the term hominids today we speak, we say hominins and god selects two of them and endows them with intellect intellects by creating for them rational souls so he comes back to the language of God creating uh, human souls uh, for those hominins who then can procreate still with those biological and philosophical human uh, uh, other human beings and produce a new uh, homo sapiens. Now, I emphasize that on this scenario, we have God who arbitrarily and without reference to any biological change selects two hominins and endows them with intellects by creating for them rational souls. So it is not Muller's uh, claim where supernatural grace comes uh, and, uh, and is the final stage. No, it is this time in uh, Kemp's understanding a human soul that is sent uh, by God and, uh, or influxed by God. And this is a language actually Kenneth Kemp uses, influx of the soul. Now, I claim that Kemp's proposition for uh, the reasons that actually I discussed in the first part of uh, this lecture is what? First, is the problem is that it is voluntar voluntaristic. So it depends on God's arbitrary decision without a particular natural condition that enables the final step of communization to occur. I think it's dualistic again, uh, which I would uh, criticize, uh, because human souls, it seems like they are added to otherwise almost rational uh, or almost, almost theological human beings, which is, I, I argue, not, not acceptable from the Aristotelian Thomistic point of view. And also metaphysically, uh, this is metaphysically dubious because again, it suggests this unusual substantial change where we have hominins, adult hominins that, and soul is being like infused into those entities. Now concerning two and three, uh, Kemp could easily amend his position, I claim, saying that simply God creates the first human souls and that actual is primary matter, as I said in the first part of this uh, lecture. But I think that the first uh, charge becomes a problem because define uh, voluntarism typical of William of Ockham and some strains of post-Reformation theology uh, is foreign to Aquinas. So I speak from the Aristotelian Thomistic point of view and my uh, claim would be that this is a problem because for Aquinas, God's agency, agency always takes into account the nature of things and works through them as secondary and instrumental causes. So in this natural part of coming into existence of human beings, my claim is that God pays attention to what happens in nature and he wants to work through that and not voluntaristically uh, bringing human beings into existence. So I argue that God's direct creation of the first human soul or souls corresponded to the proper disposition of primary matter within the complex process of speciation, as well as 
it corresponded to the procreative action of particular hominins, which enabled their gametes to meet and merge in fertilization. And this, the latter, this substantial change, this, this fertilization is a substantial change that gave origin to the first modern human being or beings. And I claim it was possible once again because of some decisive natural change in the biological material that prepared or disposed this biological material and the primary matter that underlined, underlined it to enter such change in which uh, the human, the first human being uh, came uh, into existence. Consequently, uh, to conclude, I claim, uh, well, I would distance, uh, if, if I was to defend monogenetic scenario to begin with, because I don't want to say I, I wholeheartedly uh, embrace and defend it. If I was to defend it from the classical Aristotelian Thomistic point of view, uh, I would be very skeptical about this voluntaristic picture offered by Kemp. I would uh, lean more towards the Alexander's position, uh, where there is a correspondence between what happens in biological material and uh, and God creating the first human uh, soul that enters uh, the human uh, that that uh, uh, actualizes the first primary matter primary matter in the first human being. Because the one other argument which I find crucial when we use this dualistic language of the, there being animal and their gut uh, creating the soul, we may sometimes, well, it doesn't have to, it doesn't need to, but it may suggest that the soul like comes from somewhere, whereas human souls, they don't pre-exist for even a split of a second before there is a human being. Uh, and this is actually the teaching of the church. Souls never pre-exist. They can subsist as substances after we die. This is really weird, metaphysically speaking, but we believe that it is possible. And this is the revelation that uh, teaches us about that. But uh, but they never pre, uh, pre-exist. This is monogenetic scenario. I say if I was uh, to defend it, then I would do it in this way. There are also very interesting arguments in favor of polygenism which are also theological arguments. And therefore, uh, I believe that the conversation is open and should be open. Uh, and I will just mention them so that we are not left uh, here with just monogenetic scenario and an argument in favor of it. Uh, those who are in favor of polygenism, they say, well, let's be honest. If you read the account of Genesis, we already have a community in sin. There's Adam and Eve, and actually Eve is the first one to commit sin. So uh, so what's the problem then for theology if we have a, a community of two committing a sin to have a community of 5,000 committing simultaneously together a sin with uh, like a head of a herd in person of, uh, let's say, an, of Adam. Exegists, they say that Adam, uh, I believe those of you who are theologians, you know it, Adam means uh, human nature, uh, at least in the first three or maybe even in the first four chapters of Genesis. So uh, you may reinterpret it in this uh, those accounts in this way. St. John speaks about the sin of the world. Uh, so all those who speak about the collective nature of uh, sin, uh, they find uh, um, uh, here a reference uh, to uh, look into. And definitely the uh, interpretation of uh, Roman, uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 12, where a Vetus Latina version available for Augustine was, says that sin passed to all 
in uh, Adam uh, in whom all have sinned, whereas today we know that the more appropriate translation is that death passed to all because all have sinned. So this is a dramatically different translation. And then the question is, what do we do with this in terms of the entire theology of sin? And uh, and this is this is a huge and another conversation. But it is this argument is also being used by those who are in favor of polygenism. And uh, their last very strong and important argument is an argument about the interpretation of humanogenesis. And Kenneth Kemp actually he spent a considerable amount of time working in the archives of the Vatican. He worked on. Uh, all four, I believe, or five drafts of Humani Generis. Uh, and he wrote a paper. I don't want to, uh, uh, because I was actually, I happened to be a reviewer of that paper and I spoke uh, to him about all this. It's a, it's, it's an upcoming paper in Schoenzeit Fides, the Polish uh, journal in, uh, on science, science and religion. A wonderful paper where he shows, where he shows where the document uh, at the beginning was much, much stronger in its claim against polygenism. It ended up being much less strong on anti-polygenetic uh, account. And then also Kenneth Kemp shows how after five years after the publication of the document, there was a movement here in Rome uh, in uh, the Holy Office to, to actually uh, make this claim more specific. Uh, and I will not tell you what happened because you would like to go to that paper. Uh, so, but uh, this is the argument on uh, again on the side of those who are in favor of, of polygenism. Therefore, that the conversation is not closed by the Pope, and there is still space for a conversation. Thank you very much.